Our sermon this morning is on the parable of the wicked tenants. We're in uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you are using a pew Bible, uh, you can find Luke chapter 20 on page 826. So go ahead and turn turn there in your Bibles. This is uh, one of the last parables in the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for several years now, and we have probably another, I don't know, 9, 12 months before we uh, are done with it. Um, but um, we've seen a number of different parables. Luke is probably the most prolific of all of the Gospel authors in terms of in terms of parables. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of parables that are shared uh, between a, a bunch of different Gospels, uh, but in terms of par- parables that are unique to a specific Gospel, Luke has most of those, uh, and they're, they're usually the ones that are like, they have really fascinating, it's like they would make like a Hollywood, you know, movie, or they're, you know, fascinating, immersive stories with complex and interesting characters, the Good Samaritan, just in Luke, the, the parable of the rich fool, the prodigal son, the unjust steward, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the, the unjust judge, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. There's all of these, all of these uh, parables. Luke seems to have a, a, a particular preference of recounting some of these stories that maybe uh, some of the other gospel uh, authors you know, decided to not include in their and their Gospels. But, so we've seen all of those over the last few years, and this is pretty much uh, one of the final parables in the Gospel of Luke. And what we see, what we have seen, and what we will see today is that all of these parables, almost all of them, have similar recurring themes. They're meant to kind of tell similar stories. You know, most of them serve as a rebuke to the prideful, uh, you know, self-righteous religious leaders. Um, A lot of them uh, serve to illustrate the sin and rebellion of these leaders in ways that are kind of shocking and kind of scandalous. Um, a lot of them are intended to warn those religious leaders about the coming judgment of God. A lot of them are intended to communicate that God's purposes and God's plans and God's promises and God's grace and God's salvation is not um, exclusively intended for this narrow, you know, exclusive circle uh, like like they thought, but rather it was this big, all-encompassing. It's intended to be broadcast out, scattered out to the nations, Gentiles come in, right? Sinners come in, foreigners come in, experience God's grace. And so uh, this parable hits on all of those, all of those themes, right? Many of those themes run through a lot of the other parables. We see a lot of them here in this one about the wicked tenants. I used to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, They're called crew now, but uh, when I was there, they were at Campus Crusade for Christ, and so I, you know, several as a student in college, several years after college, uh, did you know ministry evangelism, discipleship on college campuses. Went to uh, went to East Asia and did some some ministry there for a couple of of summers. Um, their big thing, Campus Crusades' big thing is uh, like they you know is on is you know training and mobilizing students to share the gospel with others, but they do it with a tool called the Four Spiritual Laws. So they kind of distill down into a little booklet that you can give to people, read through with them, uh, and it kind of walks through these four basic tenets um, of kind of what it understands the gospel to be clearly communicated. Uh, and I wrote them down. So, so uh, God loves you and created created you to know him personally. That's law number one. Law number two, man is sinful and separated from God, and so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. Spiritual law number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. 
And then number four, it's not enough just to know these truths. We must personally, individually receive Jesus as Savior and Lord so that we can know him and experience his love. It's kind of the four spiritual laws that every you know, student or staff person involved with Cambridge Crusade is going to be well-versed in, and they're going to be you know, trained in how to share that with, with others. It's interesting, though. And so that's exactly what, like, that's exactly what we see, uh, kind of shining through, bleeding through this parable about the the wicked tenets: uh, God, sin, Christ, faith. It's kind of the four laws, and those those are kind of the four big movements, or the four like like kind of unmistakable things that are kind of shining through as we as we read this story about the the wicked tenets. Who is God? What is He like? What is sin? Right. Uh, at, at its at its most fundamental level, at its core, what what is sin, and and you know how should we guard against it? Who is Christ? Why did He come? What did He do? And then how are we to respond? What does it mean to put our faith in Christ? What happens if we do? What happens if we don't? Kind of the four spiritual laws, and that's kind of again what we're going to see as we work through this this uh, text. So I'm going to read it, uh, Luke 20 verses 9 through 18. Then we're going to take a few minutes and just uh, and think about it together. It says, and He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. So he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to these tenants? He come and destroy them, and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them, and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you humbly and yet boldly and trustingly. We, we ask you to come here and meet with us and speak to us and change us and form us. Lord God, we, we commit these next few minutes to you and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. All right, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. This man's wealthy. He's a property owner. He's going on a long trip. He's going to be gone. He hires out his, his vineyard to these, uh, these men and have them, have them tend to it. This is a fairly common practice in the first century. And it's, it's somewhere between, uh, it's somewhere between, like on the spectrum, it's somewhere between like a mall or a, a landlord that would rent out a space to someone and say, hey, here's your space. Do what you want to with it. Pay me a set amount every month. You can live there. You can transact business there. You whatever. It's all on you. I just want my, my money every month. Somewhere between that, like a landlord, and um, 
a business owner hiring an employee, right? And tasking that employee with managing his, his business, um, you know, and the manager kind of getting paid a, a salary. It's somewhere on the spectrum where, where like, this guy's kind of an employee being employed by this wealthy vineyard owner. He's kind of a, a tenant, a renter, renting this space from the vineyard owner. It's kind of an ambiguous, weird, weird thing. The owner basically says, while I'm away, you are the, the vineyard is more or less yours to kind of do what you want with it. Uh, but I expect you to, to turn a profit, right? If and, and when you turn a profit, then I am going to take, uh, you know, my return on my investment, my share of the profits. If you don't, then you owe me me money. But yeah, the expectation is that this man is going to, uh, you know, work the vineyard. He's going to manage the employees and the staff of the vineyard. He's going to make it profitable, and then they're going to share in the profits to together. That's the arrangement: part landlord, part business owner, part employer, part investor, part renter, employee, manager, operator whatever it is. And so they've got this, this arrangement. The, the owner heads out. And then it says, when the time came, verse 10, he sent the servant, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. It's been a few weeks. Maybe it's been a, a few months. Maybe it's the end of the fiscal quarter. They reached the agreed upon time frame to settle accounts. Sends the guy, it's time for you to give me my share of the business. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed, right? Uh, servants here to collect per the agreement. We're not going to honor our word. We're going to beat him up. We're going to send him uh, away empty. You know, we're going to steal. We're going to steal money from our landlord. We're going to steal money from, you know, this will be somewhere between a, a, a renter not paying rent, which is theft, and an employee stealing stuff from his employer, which is also uh, theft. So the guy says, all right, you know, maybe I caught him on a bad day, right? Like maybe... You know, they probably shouldn't have beaten up my servant, but, you know, maybe maybe they didn't read the fine print in the contract. Maybe. Uh, so let's just, you know, let, let's send someone else and hope that we get a better result. Verse 11, he sent another servant. They also treated him. They beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. What we're going to see is that with each servant that he sends, their treatment of him gets progressively worse and worse. All right. The first guy, they beat him up sent him away empty-handed. So they punch him in the face, ice pack on his jaw. Second guy, they, they beat and they treated him shamefully. So now there's, it's this escalate, it's, you know, it's gone from just physical abuse, you know, kind of, you know, put the guy, lay him up on the couch for a weekend to some sort of like psychological torture. You know, he needs therapy because he's been, been treated this, this way, but he is also uh, sent away uh, empty-handed. Verse 12, then he sent a third servant, and this one they also wounded and cast out. So the first guy gets beat up, you know, br- you know, broken nose. Second guy gets a broken nose. He also gets, you know, degraded and, and mistreated and kind of tortured, essentially. Uh, and then this, this third guy gets, you know, he leaves in critical. He t- has to go to the ER, right? He's like got a, he's been wounded. Uh, you know, he's, he's you know, not sure if he's going to live or die. But w- the, the message that's being sent is, is unequivocally clear. Your servants are not welcome here. You are not welcome here. Don't come here. This is our sovereign territory. You are not allowed here. We don't respect your rules. We don't respect your authority. As far as these tenants are concerned, it's their vineyard. And they have no obligation to give any of the profits to the landowner who invited them into the joint venture in 
the first place. So the owner says, what shall I do? Just a, a, you know, a, a word of exasperation. Good grief. Like, what, what, what am I? I'm running out of options here. I will send my beloved son. And perhaps they will respect him. So maybe these guys, uh, maybe they respect me, the, the vineyard owner, but they're, they're seeing, they're experiencing a disconnect between me and the servants that I am sending to them to speak my words to them on my behalf. Maybe they don't understand that he, that these servants that they are beating up and mistreating actually are speaking for me. They are representing me to them. So maybe I'll send my son to them. Right? That's, you can't miss that. that you can't uh, fail to realize that this son speaks for his father. They have the same last name. Right? They share 50% of their genetic DNA. Maybe that will help them realize the importance of the message that I'm sending to them. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours start to see, right, the, the uh, selfishness and the folly and the sin bordering on, like, delusion that they, that they are uh, experiencing, right? Like, what person in their right mind would... So if you know someone who's rich and you want him to leave a portion of his estate to you, the, the best way to ingratiate yourself to him so that he might leave you some of his, you know, vast amounts of money, is not to murder his son. That's the quickest way to get taken off of his will instead of being added on to it. These guys are, you know, again, bordering on deranged, that they, that they think that if they kill this guy's son, that that is somehow going to put them first in line to inherit uh, all, of his, all of his vast wealth. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This is the pinnacle of their rejection of his authority, their rebellion against him, their violence against him, violence against those people who are associated with him and those people who represent him. And Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? I'll tell you what he'll do. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. We, in America, 21st century, this is like the first time this story is starting to make sense, right? It's like I have had no category for what's been happening and how this vineyard owner has been responding up until that, that seemed crazy that he would send, you know, you would think that the second that they send the first guy away empty-handed, he would just show up with heavy artillery, remove these guys from his property, extract the money that is due him from them and or, you know, send them to prison. But like time and time again, he, he is you know gracious and he's sending more people up to it, including his own son, putting his own son at risk so that he can have a, a, have a restored relationship with him, so that they can be reconciled together. So this part where, where Jesus says he's going to destroy uh, these tenants is the first time where I'm thinking, that's exactly what I would do. Like now, like that makes sense. This is the least scandalous verse in the whole parable that the, the landowner who has been mistreated is going to finally, you know, treat these tenants with justice uh, and, and with righteousness and take what's his and, and keep them from sinning against him. 
And yet, this verse about the landowner coming back and kill and destroying these tenants and and giving the vineyard to others. It's like the exact, like the, Jesus' hearers have the exact opposite. They have been tracking with the story the whole time. Yeah, of course. Of course you're going to send more servants. Why wouldn't you? Of course, you know. And, and then when he says he's going to destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others, in verse 17 we see uh, they can't believe it, right? They heard this and they said, surely not. Like that, that is what's the most, uh, you know, unexpected, shocking turn and twist for them. Surely that can't be what happens. And the reason, the reason why they are more shocked at uh, the vineyard owner destroying the tenants and giving the vineyard to others is because they are uh, they're hearing the sto- they're hearing the story beneath the story, right? They're, they're understanding uh, who, what message Jesus is intending to communicate and how uh, and what the implications are of this turn in the story. They recognize that the vineyard owner is God, right? This wealthy, generous, benevolent owner of an incredible, beautiful vineyard. They recognize that the vineyard is representative of uh, the salvation of God, the blessings of God, the nation of Israel, intimacy with God, the privilege of enjoying a relationship with God. They recognize that the tenants represent the nation of Israel, or more specifically, the religious leaders in the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, elders, scribes, chief priests, teachers of the law, right? They recognize that, that the, the religious leaders in Israel are the ones who are charged with exercising care and oversight over God's vineyard and the people that are working in it. They recognize that the servants who are being sent to get the money that is due them from the tenants are the prophets, right? Men who are uh, called by God, ordained by God, sent by God to the people of God with a word from God to call them to repentance, right? A lot of, you know, the prophets often start their, start their messages to the people. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to God. You, 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 like, God initiated his relationship with you at Sinai through Moses, but you've abandoned your covenant. You've broken his law. You've incurred his judgment. Repent and entrust yourself to the mercy of God Give God what he is due. And how did Israel respond to the prophets? Second Chronicles 36 says that they mocked them and despised them. First Kings 22 says that they threw them into prison. Second Chronicles 16 reiterates that same reality. Here's how the author of Hebrews describes the fate of the prophets. He says, what more shall I say? Time would fail me. I don't even have enough time to explain to you the mistreatment that the prophets of God experienced at the hands of the people of God. Time would fail me. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So Israel treated the prophets. We don't want you to tell us that we've sinned against God. We, don't, we want to keep doing what we're doing. We want to keep all of the prophets to ourselves. We don't want to give to God that which is his due. These, these first century hearers, they, they understand God is the vineyard owner. 
right? The, the tenants are the leaders of the people of Israel. The, the servants are the prophets of God sent to God's people to declare God's word to them. And so when Jesus is here, hear him say that the vineyard owner is going to return and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Here's what they're understanding. This is why they're so scandalized, why they're so upset, why they're so shocked, because they are understanding this to be Jesus telling them, God is furious at you. Right? You have worn out your welcome. God invited you into a covenant. You abused the privilege. You have not held up your end of the bargain. You have not been faithful to him. You have not kept his law. You have not respected him. You have not treated him as he deserves to be treated. And now because of that, God is going to come back. God is going to destroy you. The privileged position that the nation of Israel enjoys among all the nations of the world, God is going to take that away. It will be gone. The privileged position that the religious leaders enjoy among the nation of Israel, God is going to take that away. It will be gone. God is going to destroy you because he's not pleased with you because you have abandoned your covenant with him. And... God is going to take his blessing, the special covenant that you have with him, that up until now you have been enjoying exclusively with him. God is going to take that. He's going to make it available to anyone and everyone. Religious leader out and destroyed. Gentiles, foreigners, pagans, idolaters, non-Christians. They're, they're in. They're going to be welcomed in. They're going to be invited to experience the grace of God. And this idea is scandalous to the religious self-righteous people in Israel. The idea that filthy, godless, pagan idolaters will be able to experience the grace of God is scandalous. They object to it. There's no way that we could be cast out and there's no way that someone as bad as them could be invited in. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, well then what is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 uh, says, you know, it's a psalm declaring, give, give thanks, to the, like the love of God endures forever. Give thanks to Him. Call out to Him. Take refuge in Him. When you are surrounded, when it looks like there's no hope, look to God, trust in Him. God will make a way for His people to be saved. That's the context in Psalm 118. And then we see this verse, I thank you, God, that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A little bit ambiguous until we read on in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that the stone is talking about Jesus. Jesus came to God's people. Jesus invited God's people to be saved through him. Jesus invited God's people to be reconciled to him if they would trust him and follow him, but they rejected him. Jesus was the stone that was rejected by the builders. They threw him aside, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He ascended into power and glory, and now he is the, the cornerstone, the foundational weight-bearing stone upon which the entire church of God would be built and on which it would rest forever. Jesus is the stone that was rejected that has since become the cornerstone of the church. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a, a quote uh, from or a reference to uh, Isaiah chapter 8. 
verses 14 through, through 15, which in context says that God will be a, a safe place for His people, a sanctuary of rest and protection for His people. They can come to God and hide in Him and experience safety and stability from the dangers and the storms that are outside. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 8. God is a sanctuary and a safe place. But for those that don't trust in God, for those that don't obey God, He will not be a safe place for them. For those that don't trust in God, those that do not obey God, He will not be a cornerstone to bear their weight. He will instead be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare that will cause people to trip and fall and stumble and be broken to pieces. They'll be ensnared and taken. Jesus is picking up from Psalm 118 and saying uh, the the stone that was rejected will be the the weight-bearing cornerstone that you can put your weight on Him and He will save you and hold you up for all of eternity. Or you can fail to do that, refuse to do that, at which point the stone that is the cornerstone for some is going to be the stone that, that smashes to pieces and that breaks into pieces those who reject Him. Trust in Jesus as your cornerstone. Place the full weight of your salvation on Him. Or trip and fall and be crushed by Jesus in His judgment and wrath. Parable of the wicked tenants. I'm going to take a few minutes before we wrap to just examine how we see the, you know, what this parable tells us about God and sin and Christ and faith, how we can understand, uh, you know, these four kind of spiritual principles working through this parable, right? God, this this vineyard owner in this story is a generous, loving, patient, kind, fatherly figure, right? He is he. This vineyard owner is rich in resources. He has land. He has fruit bearing vines, and and he could, he could very easily hoard all of the profits to himself. I'll stay here. I'll work this vineyard myself. I'll hire, you know, uh, you know, people and pay them below minimum wage and let them live on subsistence. And I will keep all of the profits and I will enrich myself. He doesn't do that. He invites tenants to come and help and participate and work and have dignity and enjoy the fruit of their labors, Right. Here's this beautiful thing that I've created and I want you to be a part of it and I want you to take ownership of it. I want you to be, you know, I don't want you to just be a a partner or someone who's being, I don't want you to just be an employee or a slave or someone who's being exploited. I want you to be a partner, someone who partakes in this with me. I'm opening myself up to you, my experience to you. Come work, enjoy, and be blessed and benefit from me. Which is the heart of our Heavenly Father. Of the story of the Bible. Think about, think about God and his character and his experience from eternity past on to eternity future. For all time, God has existed uh, within the confines of the Trinity as this perfect, just a perfect community of love and deference and relationship and kindness and, and others centeredness. God God in the confines of the Trinity wanted for nothing for all of eternity. 
love, joy, care. That's what life has been like within the Trinity from eternity past. A perfect existence of relationships in love, which, you know, side note, is why we were created to experience relationships with others. It's why God saves us into a church to have relationships with one another. It's why God has ordained institutions like marriage so that we can have relationships with one another and experience love because that's who God is. God is a relational God. He, God has never been alone from all of eternity past. He, he lived life within the context of un, un, united and yet diverse relationships. Unity and diversity. And so God calls us as his people created in his image to, to, to be like that. But uh, God, in order to... The, the whole trajectory of creation, the whole trajectory of human history is here's God in this trinity perfect existence of love and relationship, and then God is inviting people to come experience that with Him, right? I am fulfilled within myself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I have this glorious, beautiful, incredible existence, and I'm going to create humanity, and I'm going to invite them into it. Come be with me. Come experience the wealth and all of this pleasure that I have within the confines of the Trinity, Right? I'm not going to experience this and enjoy this all by myself and leave you over by yourself over there. I'm going to invite you in. Right? And so, so the human history is kind of pushing forward. It's heading toward this climax where, where God is going to come back. God is going to judge his enemies and God is going to invite his people to live with him under his rule in the kingdom of heaven forever and forever. So it, it will, will be as close as you could possibly be to this uh, Trinitarian relationship, experience of joy and love and relationship. God has spent all of human history inviting his people to come enjoy what he has and experience it with him. Just like this wealthy vineyard owner has invited these tenants to experience what he has and be blessed by what he has. So it tells us that God is a generous, loving, patient, fatherly God who cares about his people also tells us about the nature of sin. What sin is and why it is so bad. Why it is so despicable to to God. Right? Look at the tenants. Look how they act. Look how they think. The tenants have been brought in off the street, showered with resources, given a wonderful life all he asks is that he gets uh, his fair share of the profits, right? right? You, you can have your share, which admittedly is a very generous share, but I need you to send me my share because I'm the owner, right? Uh, if, if, you, uh, if you don't want to give me my share of the profits, then we need to set up a different kind of arrangement, right? We, uh, we need to set up an arrangement where you buy the vineyard from me, you pay me for it, and then you get all of the profits from the vineyard for yourself. But as it stands, you didn't buy anything from me. You are, I hired you. I invited you to come here. And so the profits are mine and I'm sharing them with you out of the kindness of my heart. But these tenants, rightly or wrongly, and in this case wrongly, for better or for worse, and in this case for worse, uh, they've decided that they don't want to be tenants anymore. They want to be owners. In fact, they've convinced themselves that they are no longer tenants and that they are owners. Right? If you own a vineyard, you work it, you don't share the profits with anyone. They're all yours. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want a portion of the profits here, you say, beat it. 
I'm not giving you anything. This is my vineyard. I worked it. The profits are mine. I'm not giving you anything. If you were the vineyard owner. But if you're a tenant, then the owner has every right to demand his share of the profits from you. And if you don't, then he has every right to, to you know, eradicate you from his, from his property. So these tenants seem to come to the understanding that they're not just tenants, they are in fact owners, and that is, that is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is looking at God, looking at yourself, looking at everything that you have that was given to you by God. God made it. God owns it. God gave it to you by His mercy. God can ask you to do anything with it that He wants you to. God can recall it from you at any time. And the essence of sin is to look at that and say, no, this is mine. It's not yours. I'm going to do what I want to do with it. No one can tell me what to do with it. I don't have to answer to you. I don't owe you anything. I am my own person. I am living my life on my terms. I'm not a tenant. I am an owner. I enjoy all of the rights and privileges that are reserved for owners. I have total and complete autonomy over my life like an owner. If you ask me to do anything, I'll refuse. And if you tell me I have to, I'll rough you up and send you away empty-handed because I am an owner. Friends, you are not the owner of your life. You're a tenant. Your family, your possessions, your home, your money, your life, they're not yours, they're God's. God gave them to you. God lent them to you for a limited time, for a specific purpose, so that you could make much of God, make the name of God famous. That's why God gave you everything that he has. Sin is when a created being like us, who owes everything that we have to our creator, God, when we start to think that we don't owe God anything. I'm not going to do what you tell me. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. Don't eat from that tree. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Love my neighbor and honor them above myself? No. I'm going to look out for myself because that's what I want. To do. The essence of sin is refusing to love God enough that we obey him. Right? It's loving other things, choosing other things, liking other things, doing other things that show that we do not honor God above those things. This is me. This is mine. I do what I want. I don't have to answer to God or submit to his authority because I am an owner and not a tenant. You are not the owner of your life. You're a tenant. And you are you are not the owner of your salvation. You are, you are a tenant of, of that. Right? The owner says, this is my property, my business. I earned it. I bought it with my own money. I built it from the ground up. Everything that here that I see here is the result of me and my hard work and my resources and my efforts and my ingenuity. It's all because of me, and I get credit for it. How an owner understands his property and his possessions. It's not just that he can do whatever he wants with it. It's that it's, he built it. He earned it. He made it. He gets all the credit for it. There are a lot of non-Christian religious people who that's how they understand their salvation. 
I did it. I made it. I created it. I earned it. It's the result of my efforts and my merit and my hard work. When it comes right, maybe, maybe with my life and my stuff, God is the owner and I'm the tenant. But when it comes to my salvation and my good works, my religious righteousness, I am the owner. It's mine. I did it. I didn't have to rely on anyone. It was all from me and from myself. You're not the owner of your life. You're a tenant. And you're not the owner of your salvation. You are a tenant of that as well. The one who ultimately is responsible for your salvation, deserves the credit for your salvation, is not you. It's, it's God. It's God in his, his grace. God's the one who accomplished it. God's the one who receives all the glory for it. And so this parable is telling us uh, about, about God, the generous, gracious, fatherly God who cares for his people. It's telling us about the nature of sin and rebellion against God and presuming to be an owner of our own lives. It's telling us about uh, the person and work of Christ, the third spiritual law, right? This beloved son from the Father who willingly goes to his enemies, willingly goes to the people that he knows are going to do violence to him, right? He's watched as these tenants have roughed up and, and almost killed everyone that has been sent to them. He knows full well that if he goes to them, he might not come back. And yet this beloved son submits himself even to death. He's dragged outside the vineyard. He's unceremoniously murdered by the wicked, bloodthirsty tenants because they're hoping that they can kill him and get what they really want, which is freedom from his father. Jesus was with the Father in heaven for all of eternity. He watched as prophets went to his people called them to repentance, declared the word of God to them. He watched as they mistreated them. He watched as they killed him. And Jesus knew full well that when he came into the presence of his people, that he would be betrayed and arrested and convicted and and beaten and taken outside of the city and slaughtered. And he chose to do that because he loves his people the, the thought of spending eternity apart from his people was even worse than the thought of enduring the shame and the pain of the cross. So Jesus, the beloved son, came at great personal risk, came at great expense to himself, came and gave his life for his enemies. Jesus laid down his life in order to save the very people who were seeking to take his life. God, the generous Father, who invites his, his people into his experience. We see sin as, as you know, declaring uh, independence, right, autonomy and ownership, asserting ownership when we are really tenants. We see Jesus, the perfect beloved son, the sacrificial lamb who willingly came to his enemies knowing that they would kill him, and he gave his life for their sake so that they might be reconciled to God through him. And then finally we see faith, right? We see, uh, you know, faith is trusting in the character of God, the promises of God, right? The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, according to Wikipedia, the cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation 
all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. So the cornerstone is the specific stone. It's laid first. It's right in the corner. And all of the weight of the entire building presses down on this one cornerstone. All of the layers above it press down on it. All of the layers on the side of it are pressed firmly up against it. So they can kind of all be situated together in relation to one another. And Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone. The weight of your salvation rests on me. Right? If you want to be saved by Jesus, it's as simple as, as putting the weight, the burden of your salvation onto him instead of carrying it yourself. It's not a matter of praying some prayer, making a decision, uh, you know, giving intellectual assent to some set of, of facts. It's a matter of, of taking your, the burden, the weight of your salvation and putting it onto, when you sit down in a chair, right, when you're standing in front of a chair, all of the weight, you're bearing all of your weight yourself. And there's some moment when you go to sit down where your weight goes from being like, it's on your legs and calves and thighs, and it goes to resting on the chair. That's an illustration of putting your trust in Christ. Uh, up until now, the weight, the burden, the onus of my salvation was on me. I had to be good enough. I had to be strong enough. I had to be righteous enough. I had to make sure that everyone thought highly enough of me. I had to make sure that God himself thinks highly enough of me that he might accept me. Coming to Christ means that he bears your weight. You cast yourself upon him. You put your weight on him. You trust in him instead of in yourself, right? When you stand before God, you no longer appeal to yourself and your own righteousness and your own spirituality and your own goodness, your own competence. You appeal to Jesus and his righteousness and the sufficiency of his death and the surety of his resurrection. A couple weeks ago, uh, Chuck read a call to worship from Charles Spurgeon that the bridge of grace will bear your weight. Thousands and thousands of sinners have gone across that bridge. I can hear their trampings now. They've been coming since the day when Christ first entered into his glory. Some have been the chief of sinners. Some have come at the very last of their days. And the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. Jesus is our cornerstone, our weight-bearing foundation that we come to him, we rest on him, and we allow him to carry the weight of our salvation. But he's not just the rock that saves us when we cannot save ourselves. He's also the rock that destroys his enemy who persist in in rebellion and rejection. They trip over him, they stumble over him, and they are broken to pieces. Listen to, look at Revelation chapter 6, how it describes when Jesus returns. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees, uh, as as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a stormy gale. The the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was was removed from its place. And now listen how people respond. The kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone hid themselves in caves and among rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, saying, Fall on us. Hide us 
from the face of Him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When Jesus returns, it will be the worst day in history for those who have not trusted in Him. It will be so bad that they will be hoping that huge boulders and and mountains, they'll be hoping, preferring that huge mountains be upended and fall on them, crushing them violently to a painful death. Because that is preferable to standing and experiencing Christ's wrath being crushed by the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense that is Jesus as he crushes his enemies with his judgment. You either trust in Jesus as your cornerstone, you let your weight rest on him and he saves you from the wrath that you rightly deserve, or you are crushed by the stone that is Jesus as he destroys you in your sin and rebellion. This parable shows us that God is our great and glorious and sovereign generous Lord. He's given us everything and we owe Him everything. It shows us that our sin has separated us from God. We've rejected His authority. We've set ourselves against Him. We've done violence to Him. It shows us that Jesus is our sufficient Savior who sacrificed Himself and gave His life to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God. And it shows us that our calling as Christians is to respond in faith, to turn from our sin trust in Christ, put the weight of our salvation onto him so that we can be spared from the wrath of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we uh, come before you and we look to you, Lord, and we trust in you. Lord, you are our sacrificial lamb who gave his life for us. And so God, we come before you this morning. We we confess of we, we confess and we repent of our sin, of our tendency to assert our independence and our autonomy from you. Instead, we look to you as our great savior. And we trust in you and we hold fast to you because you are our only hope. In Jesus' name that we pray.